Hi, I'm Melissa Strauss, and I'm presenting this episode of the Space Invaders podcast. We're claiming equal space for women in museums and heritage. We want equal power and influence, fair working conditions, and to see women's stories told in museums and public spaces. Our guest today is Rachel Crossley, the director of the East End Women's Museum. For now, this is a great virtual museum with lots of women's stories online, but Rachel is working on turning it into a physical space in Barking in London. I'm actually a volunteer on the museum's steering group, so I've seen how much love and support there is already for this museum dedicated to women's lives. I haven't really had a chance though to talk to Rachel more broadly about feminism, leadership, and making a museum from scratch. I want to know what it's like to create the alternative, a museum led by women with our voices and interests at its very heart. So I'm delighted that she's agreed to talk to us. Welcome to the Space Invaders podcast, Rachel. Hi, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm looking forward to our chat. So I thought we should start at the beginning with the museum's founding story, as, as you do. Um, I'm referring to it in this way as I think it's destined to become a kind of future folklore. Can you tell us about how the museum came about? Yeah, it's, um, it's a unique story and, and definitely one that um, bears telling and, and telling again and again. And I think it's kind of indicative of, of wider issues which you can maybe come on to. Um, so back in the summer of 2015, there was going to be a museum or, or it seemed that, that there would be a museum opening called the East End Women's Museum, which was doing all the things we want to do now, kind of authentically and in an empowering way, tell the stories of, of women from East London. However, uh, when it opened, it was kind of the big reveal uh, that it was the Jack the Ripper Museum. Um, so very much focusing on a kind of sensationalised version of history, centering um, a man's actions uh, and, and a serial killer at that um, and yeah as I say kind of I think I think even though that's like such a grotesque example it's a kind of microcosm of how women's voices have often been sidelined and, and marginalized within um, museum and, and kind of recorded history spaces anyhow um, I think what's great about our museum and, and it really um, I think makes me very joyful to think about this is that uh, there was a big sort of outrage when the Jack the Ripper Museum um, was revealed a big sort of Twitter storm um, there were there were real um, passion protests outside on its opening um, but our founders kind of wanted to sort of go beyond that angry indignation and they wanted to do something positive and said well look we need to we need to be the ones to open that museum it needs to exist there is a demand so this kind of, even though it was such a negative thing, it did really galvanise people. Um, and so our founders, Sarah and Sarah, uh, they were old friends um, and they sort of put out a tweet into the world um, and said, should we do this? Uh, and kind of instantly uh, something like 800 people got in touch and said, yes, please do. And how can we help? Um, and within, so the legend goes, as you, as you say, it is a bit almost like a legend story now. Um, within three days, the New York Times had gotten in touch with them to uh, ask about when they were going to be opening. Um, so it's fair to say that it snowballed um, <laughs> from, from its inception. Um, but yeah, this kind of, as I say, very sort of negative in a way beginnings, but I think something that um, with the sort of strength of conviction and commitment of our founders and the sort of supporting volunteers um, have turned into something really positive that can be for women and girls stories in perpetuity, we hope. So, yeah. 
that's that's why we came about <laughs> you did mention this a little bit but um wh why do we need a, mu a women's museum yeah i mean um when you start to uh, kind of unpick the, the look behind the, and, and look at the statistics. Um, it's really quite shocking, even though we're in 2020. Um, the estimates from the historian Bethany Hughes um, suggest that only 0.5% of recorded history um, tells the story of women. Um, and you've got kind of other indicators of that. So you've got, for example, um, Wikipedia, so, so a contemporary um, resource, only um, about 17% of biographies on Wiki are, are of women. Um, or you get things like the um, BBC did a poll a couple of years ago that was about icons of the 20th century. Um, and it was across lots of different categories around entertainment, politics, sports, science and so on. And even though the shortlist that, that the BBC had put forward was about equal, um, it resulted because it, it was a public vote and every category was won by a man, um, which I think really speaks to the fact of how sort of systemic this is, um, that women's stories are lacking right from our kind of educational syllabus. Um, so it just becomes, yeah, very systemic, this idea that women have contributed less. Yeah, we hope to not just sort of rectify and, and rebalance the historical books, but also um, really facilitate and empower women and girls and the present to be making their mark as well. That's really interesting. I've, I've been thinking a bit lately about this idea that museums are not neutral and how that relates to wider issues for women, even though those that connection hasn't really been made, I don't think. Mm -hmm. um, I'm wondering if you can say a little bit more about what you think the wider implications are of ignoring women's contribution to history. Yeah, I mean, these things kind of replicate themselves. Um, so I, I, I agree that the Museums is Not Neutral movement is is really important. Um, and you're right, I think it's not been, been sort of unpacked, particularly in gender terms. Um, one project that springs to mind is the work of um, TWAM, Tyne and Wear Archives and Museums, who I think are great. Um, and, and in 2018, they did a project which essentially acknowledged that their collection has, you know, it, it tells the story of um, Newcastle and Gateshead area or Tyne and Wear area. Um, and historically, they'd collected in this kind of inadvertent but masculine way. Um, so even when whichever there was I heard that at a conference, they were saying any kind of topic they wanted to talk about, work, home, <laughs> you know, any sort of almost like generic or broad topics, their collections were so tending towards men's stories. Um, so in 2018, they did a big project, which um, really cool, lots of different facets to it to, to basically significantly increase women's stories within their collection. So one of the things they did was like interview older women about like quote unquote taboo subjects like masturbation, menstruation and abortion and sex. Um, and so now they have that kind of to hand um, within within the, the collection canon to be able to, to draw on. And I think that's a good example of how within those broad topics, just those very kind of very subtle ways in which women's stories can be suppressed. And if you don't have the material there within a museum, then it can't be told. So it just keeps replicating itself, right? Um, and as I say, I, you know, in terms of then what, 
our museum representation means for society at large. I really believe in that phrase, if you can't see it, you can't be it. Um, so with the museum, I want, you know, we'll, we'll be in, embarking. That's the place of some real gender challenges around, for example, relatively high domestic violence, um, a relatively high gender pay gap. Um, and I want women and girls to be able to, to, to go to that site and, and engage with that material and feel like they're... <laughs> they're not limited by their gender and I'm not saying we're going to be a panacea for all gender issues um, uh, of East London but that we start to challenge some of the stereotypes we offer new role models and hopefully kind of yeah expand horizons ultimately I want to talk now a bit about making a feminist organization I think um, the museum appears to be very much a feminist-led project and I'd be really interested to hear how you describe feminist leadership, what you think it involves. I think we've done this very intuitively, but this is the first time I've really talked about it or that like to properly try and kind of explore it in depth. And, you know, I think like for me, feminist leadership is at its heart, it's rejecting and it's shrugging off like the very worst of that patriarchal corporate hierarchical cultures that, that I think foster iniquity bullying or really unhelpful non-inclusive practices for me leadership is almost the opposite of like what a leader is kind of support quote-unquote supposed to do where I think it's about like listening to other people first and foremost. I don't think it's about like directing your views on others. I love the phrase, none of us is as smart as all of us. That's so true. And I think one of the ways we try and model that within the museum is inviting different voices in and, and you know, having our, our steering group like uh, you remember to have decision makers across in different positions. So it's not... A strict hierarchy I guess. I also think it's about facilitating other people to be able to put themselves forward. Like in future for example I would like it not to be me doing these kinds of, of talks necessarily. So I should say at the minute I'm the only member of staff so I you know lead the organization in one sense but not in a kind of team management sort of a way. So one of the ways the museum can be really powerful is to also act as a platform for others essentially supporting other aligned projects so they might be sort of about women's history stories feminism gender equality to to kind of branch out and do their wonderful thing as well because we're not the only ones who can do impactful work and and it's really important that there is a proliferation of those voices and that kind of activity the sort of last thing and and definitely not least is around I think being an empathetic leader I think the importance of of self-care and care of others particularly when trying to do kind of social justice feminist work is really important and one thing that strikes me and we'll have to see how this is actually realized I don't really know yet so feel free to write in is how the museum space can facilitate a more emotional response with people's historic stories and that probably isn't going to be a 
traditional, mainly object glass case text approach. That's not to say that there wouldn't be any of that, but I think there could be some really interesting ways to essentially try and put yourself in the shoes of someone else. So yeah, that is a lot of different things. There's a fair bit to it, but yeah, I'm I'm excited to lead a, a feminist organisation and to be able to kind of model these things and, and put them into practice as well. Your answer kind of raises quite a few things for me, actually. I mean, I'm really interested in this notion of the emotional response. I've heard, heard this sort of talked about in relation to decolonisation lately, too. Um, I was kind of thinking about how the feminist principles work in, in the practical sense, in terms of like collecting stories and the design for the new space and the way you engage with local communities. Is there anything else you can kind of say about that kind of practical being intersectional and being inclusive is is absolutely at the heart of the approach we operate across east london right one of the most amazingly vibrantly diverse um parts of probably the world actually um barking dagenham alone the kind of local demographic makeup there is about 50 percent black and minority ethnic so for me it's incumbent on us that that is reflected in our our workforce our the stories that we tell in in kind of all facets of representation and you know i should say we're not there yet and that is definitely work for us we are in an or maybe it's the wrong word but an almost luxurious position compared to other museums that have existed a lot longer than us and it clearly means something different or it certainly should do to set up a museum in 2015 as opposed to like in the 1750s when the British Museum was set up right there's you know lots of great practice in those longer established museums but much of it is sort of retrospective and um, we have a chance to don't get me wrong we, we exist within a kind of colonial framework if you like so we are not we are not free of that entirely, but we do have an opportunity to start an organisation from inception, which starts to collect with those principles in mind. So we we have it now as a founding principle and we can we can live those values us as like kind of disruptor new museums. Um, that exist alongside and there, there are others um, I should say you know we're part of the Emerging Museums Alliance so organizations like the Museum of British Colonialism like the Queersium, the Vagina Museum organizations like Migration Museum organizations like us that oh Museum of Homelessness sorry I have to mention as many as I can because I love them um, you know all very contemporary organizations all with social justice kind of very explicit missions and all doing things really quite differently um i think that's a good thing for the sector i'm really interested in this idea about the challenges and benefits of doing something like this yourself outside of an institution that's been mm -hmm. going for a long time i kind of wonder what's the difference between operating in this environment and more traditional museums yeah, that's a good question. So I've worked in big museums, <laughs> worked at the V&A, the Museum of London, Historic Royal Palaces. So I've mainly known it from that side. And partly what attracted me, so I started this role about 18 months ago, and partly what attracted me, apart from the fact it was like, the amazing middle of the Venn diagram of my perfect job around <laughs> museums, 
feminism, community engagement, the the small scale of it felt like an opportunity to have a different kind of an impact. And clearly you don't come with the weight of resources or like an established name and our connections, which I have enjoyed in, in previous roles. We come out of an activist tradition, right? So kind of operating more at the grassroots. I think it's not that it's more impact, it's just, I think it just looks a bit different. And I think it feels very contemporary, it feels very timely for the, the moment that we're in. I think, as I say, we don't, you know, we, we have much fewer of those restrictions or sort of shackles of, of history, of, of tradition. We can be agile. Let's remember, we started as a tweet, so it sort of started and we just did like different projects. We didn't, like, there was not a master plan. So now we are kind of starting to formalise, I guess. Hopefully not, never too much. We're about to go through a phase of, of um, kind of business planning and really drilling down on, on our, like, goals and, and mission and values. There's something so exciting about being part of that and part of a community who discusses that right from the start of this project and to be kind of given the license to reimagine what a museum can do um <laughs> i don't know quite what it is yet but that's in a way you know even even more exciting so and you know look at the museum of homelessness they've just run a four month and continue to run an emergency appeal over over the the pandemic um, time period where they're distributing food to the homeless like that's not something that a long established museum could easily do it's not to say that none of them do but they the museum of homelessness because it's such part of their mission and they already had those networks they were operating within that kind of um, world they were able to kind of turn on a sixpence and immediately give out emergency aid um which it's hard to argue a sort of more powerful act right um but they they had positioned themselves they were so well placed to authentically do that and that i think is the power of a smaller kind of disruptor grassroots museum so I noticed um, that you flinched, Rachel, when you said that you were going to formalise the museum. I'm just wondering what that brought up for you. <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, well, I think there's a really interesting and important challenge there for the museum, isn't there? So we start in this way that could not be more organic, grassroots and informal um, by putting out a tweet and we're now in a position where we have to we want to but we, we have to manage a capital project to get into a building that includes um, you know significant fundraising that includes increasing resources that really needs that kind of strategic framework around it. it you know, it, it needs that kind of absolute best practice in to, to, to do justice, you know, to realize the building and the, the vision of the museum in the best possible way. But how do we do that? I don't necessarily have the answers for this. Like we, we want to do that in a way that still feels authentic to our founding still is in keeping with that more kind of activist tradition so it's going to be a fine balance i suppose um and i don't want to get to the point where it feels like it's it's just you know it's drifted and it's 
but I think I think fundamentally that's going to come down to values, isn't it? So it might look more formal, but as long as we can still live our values, and I think feminist leadership is a real exemplar of of, of many of our values. If we can hold on to that, then I think we will be able to do so. But it's it's not without its challenges, which is probably why I flinched. I've actually been thinking about how these kinds of traits or principles that come up when talking about feminist leadership are increasingly thought of just as good leadership. Mm -hmm. I don't know that the connection to feminism isn't really made very much. I'm not sure no. if there's something more specific or different that makes it feminist or is it that leadership generally is now influenced by feminism? I, well, I wonder if it's, a uh, residual reluctance to use the F word in relation to things that are good. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know that I always need that to be called feminist leadership. I, I like to observe that, but it, it doesn't need to necessarily be understood that way to others. It reminds me, I had a conversation about the museum. Someone said to me, oh, it's going to be like a museum that charts the history of feminism. And I was like, no, no, it won't. <laughs> They're like, yeah, sure. So, well, it charts women's stories and often their achievements, and they have often acted in a way that I would see as feminist. So, if you look at the 1888 Match Girl Strikers, that was women collectively organizing, in some cases, children, teenagers, putting themselves forward to take action it would seem very collaborative very kind of you know imbued with these values would they have called themselves feminists probably not <laughs> and I think that's actually fine and and I don't necessarily need someone visiting the museum to think oh this is about feminism or I'm a feminist now it's almost more subtle than that I want them to think about their you know again not be not be limited by gender and whether that's conceived within a framework that calls itself feminism or not I don't really mind because I think it is feminism. <laughs> You've mentioned um, the match girls there and I know that there are lots of really inspiring stories about women that have led change uh, that you've been telling that you can see on your website and in, and in other events that you've put on. I just wondered whether you might share maybe one with us. <laughs> oh no you can't ask me to give it to one that's impossible one one that I'm really excited about because it's so close to home um the new museum site will be embarking um and that's going to be the opposite the um, medieval ruins of um, Barking Abbey which in the 7th century was the home to some of the most educated powerful women in the country um, namely the the abbesses and I read the story recently that just had such kind of contemporary resonance St Ethelberga was um, at one point the kind of leader of the nuns there must be a proper word for that apologies chief abbess let's say um and there was a plague in 664 um and uh she they debated whether to uh, kind of close ranks um, and, and secure the health and, and safety of the nuns or to open the doors and to care for people and um, she led them to do the latter um, and it was catastrophic um, she, she died as a result as did other nuns as well um, but that notion of um, 
putting care of others above everything else is so powerful um and yeah we will be like literally we'll be able to see the abbey from our museum so i kind of love the idea that that um that kind of con con conviction and commitment and care is like so close to home um the second story I'm going to take is much closer to our time period now, um, to the, the 1970s. I was going to talk about Marla Sen, um, who next year will be, it'll be 10 years since she passed away. Actually, she passed away quite young. Um, Marla had come over um, from Mumbai to uh, London when she was a teenager. Um, and in the 70s, she was a co-founder and a, a very sort of... Um, powerful leader um, within the Bengali Housing Action Group. So basically um, a grassroots group that were organizing um, to, they were squatting in empty properties um, in um, kind of Tower Hamlets. Um, they were campaigning to the council um, to have better conditions um, and challenging racism. So basically a lot of the Bengali community had like really poor or, or no housing opportunities. Um, and yeah, she was like a very first campaigner. Um, and that's really one of the reasons why um, Brick Lane is such a kind of heartland of, of the Bangladeshi community today. So she's again not not as well remembered as she should be um but really sort of came from from nothing to make a real impact and again kind of lead from the front but be um an activist to support others in order to progress justice and equality so yeah we love Marla. Oh, that's great um, i mean that just shows i think a little bit of the sort of vast <laughs> yeah. range and richness of, of the stories that you're going to be telling and are already telling actually and kind of bringing it much more to the present too i think i'm i'm quite interested in what your hopes are for the impact of the museum on women and girls today oh it's nice to be able to talk about that because <laughs> that's what it's all about right well, I think it's about having more more of this content available, right? It's been sort of hidden in archives for a long, long time. It's also very much about the contemporary voice. So one thing we're talking about is how we can support people to tell their own story. So whether that's um, like a little kind of phone booth thing at the museum site where you record, or whether that's a digital project, that there's this idea which I really buy into. As a woman, if you're not making your mark today, um, then you're just colluding with the patriarchy because future historians will not know you either and you'll be missing in the archives but also I think there's a real power in sort of finding your own voice understanding that the power of your own story I mean the number of times you know we do sort of like have stalls at festivals and chat to people about what we do and and they're often like oh well I've got oh I've got nothing to say and then you just kind of keep chatting um and then it turns out they have remarkable life stories or they tell you about something that aunt did or grandma or you know um and i guess it's i'm very attracted and compelled by the idea of the the extraordinary within the ordinary and i think we kind of seek that out and celebrate that um and you know like one of the things that makes me most happy is thinking about having like early years groups basically i, I want to have like um feminist sing-along because i just think that would be very funny but also like very um <laughs> powerful and important 
child-led feminism I think that's the way forward <laughs> just um coming on to some kind of advice for others um not suggesting that anyone should start a new museum but what advice do you have for others that might want to create an alternative to what's already out there Ooh, well, I'd say don't be put off starting a new museum. Museums are wonderful. Um, but there are many different models. And I think, well, look at us, right? We started as a tweet. We then went on to be um, project funded, fairly small scale and then increasing in scale. And now we're at a stage, we, you know, we're, we're working towards a building like any one of those um, forms is completely valid. So you don't have to, even whether you call it a museum or, or what have you, it doesn't have to be, you know, building based, large scale, long term. You know, there is funding, support, advice out there. Like email me if you want, <laughs> if I can help based on what you've heard, like I, I'd love to. But I think these things are possible. It's just a case of like finding what you're passionate about, finding how you want to share that with the world. And well, look, let's look to feminist leadership. It's all about collaboration. That's all about networks. It's leaning on other people. And generally people who do this work want to help. Like I want to help, you know, that's one of the blessed things about this, this sector is the, the support that I think people will give you. So yeah, I would say like, go for it, but reach out, lean on people. That's a good way to get things done. So finally, I'm sure a lot of people would like to know more about what you're doing and hear some of the really interesting women's stories that you've got. How, how can we find out more about the museum? Oh, yeah, please come get involved. Um, we'd love you to. So I guess our website is a really good first port of call. It's just www.eastendwomensmuseum.org. Um, and you'll see there we've got women's stories. We, we publish them regularly. We've got um, information about kind of um, previous exhibitions or, or mini exhibition sites and our events as well. We have a Twitter and a Facebook, which are great to follow because they tend to be the very most up to date in terms of what we're up to and I should also say you know we really welcome support both in terms of kind of more ongoing volunteers um, so one of the things we started fairly recently which is going really well is online content volunteers who are researching and writing women's stories um, so yeah please get in touch if that appeals um, but I'd also say not least because this is sort of more of a, a sector audience you know if you have a kind of specialism a sport specialist skill as I say currently it's just me on my own um, <laughs> trying to do many many things so if you feel like you could lend a hand maybe just kind of have a one-off conversation about your area of expertise then yeah please get in touch I'd really welcome that thank you Thank you so much for your time and insight, Rachel. It's been really interesting um, talking to you today. Quite, quite inspiring, actually, to learn more, even as someone who's already volunteering for the museum. So thank you very much. Thank you. It's my pleasure. It's lovely to talk it all through. <laughs> and it's nice to hear it's inspiring. You've been listening to the Space Invaders podcast, a collaboration produced by the Space Invaders campaign to claim equal space for women in museums and heritage. This episode was presented by me, Melissa Strauss, and produced by Lucy Harland. You can find out more about our campaign by searching for Museum Space Invaders or follow us on Twitter at mspaceinvaders. That's M for museums. Thanks for listening.